electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the state of play for stocks with the virus, China's slowdown, the taper timeline all in focus for us. The Wharton School's Jeremy Siegel, he'll join in just a moment. Steve Leisman, too, with new reporting on when the Fed will actually act. Our investment committee debating what all of that means to your money. Joining me for the hour today, Bryn Talkington, Jim Labenthal, Steve Weiss, and John Ajarian, who's the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Let's go to the wall. Stocks are falling to start the week. You know that by now. We're off the lows, though. China data came in weaker. The Delta variant continues to spread. Our committee making all sorts of moves in their portfolios today. We're going to get to that a bit later on. Let's begin the chat, though. Jim Labenthal, the man we've started calling Mr. All-In because you've been more bullish than anybody. And the market's been resilient. So, you know, I, I understand where you're coming from. I'm just wondering how long this rope-a-dope, if you will, can last and the market can continue to evade these blows. Does it last? Uh, I, look, I think it's a great question. And I'll, I'll be truthful with you. I'm a little nervous. I'm getting a little nervous about this Delta variant. You know, I didn't mean to brush off the Southwest Airlines news from last week. And you see the TSA passenger uh, uh, flows are going down. Open tables are flatlining. The case count's going up. So let me be clear. I am not changing my stance. Uh, I'm, I'm not taking risk off the table. But I'm certainly not being blasé either. And I think there's a double-edged sword here. Um, the case counts are clearly going to get worse. It looks like this thing is peaking in mid-September, hopefully goes down as the United Kingdom did uh, uh, after that. But what does this do regarding the Fed? I know you want to get to that later. I know we will get to that later. But I just find it hard to be both worried about the Delta variant and an aggressive Fed at the same time. That just doesn't make sense to me. One of those two has to give. What I'm hopeful for, what I'm expecting, actually, is that the Delta variant gives and that people continue with their travel plans, continue with their reopening and living lives plans, which will mean that these reopening stocks, which frankly still have languished off of their May highs, they still have languished. They have a lot of room to catch up, and I'm comfortable with my all-in trade. I'm keeping it on right now. The main message I'm giving you, Scott, and giving the viewers is I'm not being blasé. I think we got to keep a sharp eye on the horizon for what this Delta variant does. Okay, so Mr. All-In not changing his overall view quite yet. Bryn, you understand why Jim feels the way he does? Because the S&P's gone 200 days without a 5% pullback. We've done 48 closing highs on the S&P 500 this year. That's a remarkable stat in and of itself. The question is, is the game about to change? Do we need to pay more attention to China's economic slowdown? Should we be more worried about the Delta variant than the market? Obviously, appears that it's not. 
Well, I always like to try not to, first of all, overthink things and take from the market what it gives us. And I think as it relates to, we've had, I think, exactly 191 days without a 5% correction, which, by the way, is double the average. And so, you know, I can see why the people like, you know, Mike Wilson or Scott Minard are saying, uh, a correction is due just because mathematically, the longer it goes, the higher probability you get one. But I'm much more in Jim's camp because what are the alternatives, right? In the public markets, if you step to the side of equities, whether that's value or growth, you're going to languish in zero yielding fixed income assets and then do what? And I do want to remind the viewers that, you know, when we do get a sell off, which we will, don't forget there's two decisions you have to make. Selling is very easy. It always feels good. It always feels good to sell, take some chips off the table. But remember, you have another decision to make when to get back in. And the weight of history tells us all that those people that sell get back in much higher than when they sold originally. And so I still think buckle up. We definitely have more. I think it's I think we have a lot of fog out there and it's getting a little foggier. So I definitely am in your in your camp of things are a little bit unnerving, but I don't think the Fed's going to do anything surprising. I think they're going to manage our expectations like they've done. Mm -hmm. And I think you stay invested and really embrace the volatility, right? Embrace that volatility. That's really your only choice, I think, as a long-term or even shorter-term investor. Leisman's going to join us with some new reporting coming up, too, which we're anxious to talk to him about as well. Uh, You know, Doc, the the market has been resilient, right? Stephanie Link on Squawk Box this morning Mm -hmm. makes the point you've got so much money on the sideline. That's one of the reasons why any sell-off that you've had has been pretty quickly bought. I've got Tom Lee out with a note today suggesting to buy the weakness. It's a new note. It just dropped a few moments ago. You've got a bunch of headlines that are driving the sell-off. He said, buy this weakness is the headline. He said he is. Should we all be? For the most part, yes, Scott. I mean, uh, when, when all news is good news, Uh, Even that news that most of us would say is bad news, like that Michigan sentiment report last Friday. Um, We hit record highs after that. We didn't go down. We hit record highs. So when when you're running up in the face of news that is clearly bad, um, the worst sentiment reading since 2011, uh, pandemic era low as far as sentiment, um, that's helping the Fed, in my mind anyway, Scott, because the Fed is out there and they are hoping against hope that they don't see an acceleration in inflation that is out of control because then they're going to have to hit it hard right between the eye. They've been lucky in the now when I say lucky, a bad sentiment reading, that's easier than the Delta. But both of those have been holding us back, Scott, as well as the lack of workers, um, because until September 6th, when the unemployment added benefit rolls off, we're going to have that. And then I believe we will start catching up with Uh, the demand, we will start increasing supply of workers at about that point. At least that's my feeling, Scott. And I think that plays right to where the Fed is right now, because they don't want to hit the market hard with uh, something that would then disrupt markets. They'd rather that we just kept backing and filling, backing and filling, moving from lower left to upper right. That's what we've been doing. So I'm with Bryn. I'm with Jim. Um, that we want to look through some of this other stuff and say, well, but the market response has continued to be positive. Why would I want to jump off right now? Well, Steve Weiss, I mean, Tom Lee is part of his note, which I said just came out just before we came off the air. 
to what Doc's talking about with that plunge in consumer confidence, he says that's a contrarian thing. It supports the everything rally that he's been calling for. Now, yes. look, Steve, Tom Lee's either the greatest Pollyanna who's ever lived or he's on to something and he's going to be right that all of these fears about Delta are going to fade and that the market is going to focus on the things that matter and improving earnings picture. Once you get past Delta, people are going to continue to spend money. Don't pay attention so much to the negative headlines. Use them to your advantage. Is, is he right or is, is he just at this point searching too hard to try and be right? Well, let's look at it piece by piece. Uh, the consumer confidence number, I tweeted when it came out, it's always a tradable event, and it's a tradable event for the reaction. So when the number came out and it was lowest, as Doc mentioned, since 2011, that's when you step in because it means nothing. Consumer confidence is polled at a moment in time, and for all we know, and likely, it's when Delta was at its worst and consumers weren't feeling good. That moment's passed. Consumer confidence is a backward-looking number, not forward-looking. So forget about that. No strategist should mention, in my view, other than to say what I just said. In terms of going forward, sure, Delta is not impacting the market at all. We see that. We're hitting new highs. And if you listen to Scott Gottlieb, who's the best strategist on the street, by the way, he says that we're peaking. And I think that's consistent even with what we're seeing in China, despite the slowdown there. Cases are down. So Delta's not impacting the market at all, except for the travel stocks, which it should have. Now, as you get to better sentiment in terms of investors in the market, what are you going to get? You're going to get the Fed moving. And I've been, I think, the only one calling for the earliest, the earlier move this year of the tapering. And the Fed's been consistent messaging that. So I think it'll be, again, a viable decline in the market when it actually happens. So, yes, I do think the market should go higher. But I also think it's a time to really figure out what you want to own for the move going forward. And markets don't go up forever. They go up 90% of the time, but the declines can be painful. So you want to be in quality. You want to be in not necessarily value. You can be in growth, but lower valuation growth. And you want to stay away from small cap. If you do that, you're going to make a lot of money. And you shouldn't be trading in and out of positions to get in. So you should be concentrating your portfolio. Let me ask you this. That's how you drive Let me ask you this. I mentioned Tom Lee, and we, we spent a bunch of time on his new note for obvious reasons. Mike Wilson is out again today. He raises his year end target to four thousand from thirty nine hundred. But the bottom line, as I saw it, if you're at four thousand, you're still looking for a 10 percent correction. So, you know, I've got Tom Lee out there saying everything's going to be great. None of these bad things matter. Consumer confidence. Don't pay any attention to it. It's a positive signal. Delta variant. We're peaking. Don't pay any attention to that, because when we get past it, we're going to have an everything rally. But Mike Wilson's trying to throw some reality on the picture today and say, no, we're still going to have that 10 percent correction. What about that, Weiss? You know, Mike Wilson is the most interesting strategist out there because he's the one who separates from the pack who's willing to say, hey, the market can go down. To me, these price targets are just saying, hey, here's my view. And directionally, this is where I see Forget it. the target so, itself. Forget look, the target I mean, itself. Entertain the idea yeah. of a 10 percent correction right. from here. I mentioned at the top of the show, we've gone 200 days without a 5 percent, so much as a 5 percent pullback in stocks. Are we kidding right. ourselves to all that's out there and may come look, in the months ahead? 
No, you know, we're seeing the rolling correction. We've seen stocks correct more than 10%. The averages stay high because that's just the way the markets trade these days. So I wouldn't be surprised to see a 5% correction. 10% would surprise me, and it would have to occur because there's a surprise event out there. They don't correct by 10% just because, hey, they're tired. That just doesn't happen. So, but I'll tell you, I've got stocks in my portfolio that correct 10% and more for sure. So it's there. Hey, but Scott. Uh, overall, I think still you've got easy monetary policy. We've had cash on the sidelines forever. I just don't really think that's a factor. I don't see that $5 trillion all of a sudden coming in at record high levels in the face of the Fed raising rates. I just don't see that happening. No, well, she's talking about if you get a pullback in stocks, there is a lot of money on the sidelines that will scoop up the sell-off. And, and that's what we've um, witnessed. So that's um, the point she's making. Uh, Jim Labenthal, Farmer Jim. Yeah. Yeah, you know, look, I've been doing this for decades, and I've got to tell you, trying to time correction is a way to destroy wealth. I, I mean, I know that firsthand from clients who have told me to get out of the markets with their money. They give me the order. I take it. I can't tell them no. It's a wealth-destroying action. And, you know, I, I like Mike Wilson for the same reason that Steve does, because he's willing to stand out from the pack. But the fact of the matter is he's been calling for a 10% correction more than 10 percentage points ago in terms of rise in the S&P 500. And if, if you follow the idea of, like, let's try to time a correction, let's reduce risk, and then we'll get back in, I just tell you empirically, from having lived it, that is a way that clients destroy money, destroy well, wealth. They're always chasing it. It's just, it, we can talk about it. We can the talk same about, point. yes, there will be a correction. We just can't say when. It's the same and to point try that, to time it is, is murder. Yeah, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Um, it's the same point that, Kramer was making this morning in the, the crosstalk just before Squawk on the Street. It's like, yeah, okay, I mean, you know, how are you going to get back in? You never, no one ever gets back in at the right moment, right? It's a, it's a fleeting exercise to, to try and do that. Let's do this. For more on how long the market can hang in there against a backdrop of uncertainty, let's bring in Wharton Professor Jeremy Siegel. Professor, welcome back. Uh, good to see you, Scott. Yeah, you as well. 10% pullback, as Mike Wilson thinks may happen, or the everything rally, as Tom Lee's calling well, for? Which, which camp are you in? <laughs> you know, eventually, yes. I, I think the, the point, you know, that previous speaker made is always the case. It's like people say, is there going to be a bear market in the next five years? And I say, yes. Or that, well, should I get out now? No, because it could go up 50% before it goes down 20% or 10%. And yeah, there's going to be a correction, but if it goes, oftentimes it's going to go up much more before that a correction goes. And that's why trying to time it. Um, you know, that being said, I mean, you know, I, I think the Fed is way behind the curve. Uh, they should have been tapering, you know, three months ago. Um, and I think inflation is going to be a lot worse than the Fed has uh, expected. As, as you know, I've been I've been saying that uh, cumulatively over the next three, four years, we're going to have a 20 percent increase in the price level. So, you know, when we get out of this uh, and that's still nothing like the 70s and, you know, no double digits, no hyperinflation. But it's going to be something that is a lot more. And then, well, you don't want to be in cash and you don't want to be in bonds and you don't want to be in money assets and stocks are real assets. So, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, there's going to be bumps along the way, what I call taper tremors. But, uh, you know, uh, you know, there ain't no alternative uh, rains more now than it ever did before. Oh, man, people are going to hear you say that. And I was thinking I wrote it down as you were talking. There is no alternative. I mean, that's what people say. 
What else are you going to yeah. do? What are you what are you watching most of all right now? What what concerns you the most? Or is it China slowing? Is it the Delta variant? Is it the Fed? And we're going to have some new reporting in a moment from Steve Leisman regarding that topic. But what 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 are you watching most of all? Well, I watch the you know, I mean, I watch the price indices because I think it are going to just be much worse coming up. I know we had a, a slightly benign one, uh, you know, relatively, uh, uh, you know, last week. But I think that, honestly, the Fed's going to watch those price indices. And the next Fed meeting's going to be after the, uh, the August report. If that goes back up the way before, you're going to see a lot of things moving forward. Um, but then again, people are going to say, OK, so they're going to taper faster. Hey, maybe they're going to start raising and in 2022. But still, you know, who's afraid of a 1% Fed funds rate when inflation's seven? I mean, mean, you know, I want real assets. You know, I want land. I want property. I want real assets. Stocks are ultimate real assets in in reality. And actually, stocks that are levered and have borrowed at the right now fill up with as much borrowing as you can, because you're just going to be paying back with dollars that are worth a lot less. Um, and there's no trouble passing on these price and cost increases because there's more liquidity around than there ever has been before. Remember, the money supply in, uh, you know, last year increased by more than any other year in the last one and a half centuries, 150 years, M2 increase in the money supply. And that's got to be followed by inflation. It's can, never can you, not been followed by inflation. Can you see a scenario like Tom Lee paints, I'm sure you've seen his research and I'm almost certain you've seen him on our air talking about it. This idea that, look, the Delta variant's peaking, earnings are picking up and that's a scenario and, and interest rates aren't going to be off to the races either. So yeah. even even with the Fed tapering a, a little sooner than maybe some expect yeah. that everything can yeah, go you, up. You continue to go. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. First of all, you know, I mean, I, I, I found that consumer confidence number to be um, rather anomalous because it's, it's, it was very much different from the conference board number reported two weeks earlier. Um, I mean, to actually be below what we experienced last April is a little hard to believe. Um, uh, I actually think that there's a lot of discouragement because people see price increases. It's not just the Delta variant. I mean, I think that's going to crest through and not be a problem. I think a lot of people are saying, oh, my goodness, you know, inflation is going to be a lot worse than I thought. I thought I had a lot more money, but I'm paying that in prices. I don't have as much money. And, you, and, and if you take a look at the details of that report, it was in a lot of the purchase of durable goods that have gone up, autos and others. That's where the discouragement is. I don't think it's really the Delta uh, variant. I think that's going to pass. But uh, uh, I think that's where the discouragement is. But again, when you talk about investing alternatives, you know, uh, you know, worse inflation just argues less and less for fixed income and cash. You know what? I want you to stay with me. I want you to stay with me. Let's bring in Steve Leisman now, our senior economics reporter, who can shed some more light on when the Fed actually may act. You heard the professor, Steve. He's far from the only one. I, I'm, I'm betting that you think the Fed's a little behind the curve at this point. The fact of the matter is, it sounds like they may try and get ahead of it sooner than we think. Uh, I think the better way to say it, Scott, might be a little less behind. Uh, I think that's what they're aiming <laughs> okay. for here. 
Uh, look, the, uh, the, 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 Fed, the Fed was trying to be behind the curve. That was, their, that was their aim. That was their goal. They were trying to let inflation run and get the average inflation rate up to 2%. I think they uh, misunderestimated what would happen with supply shortages and really getting things going when you stuffed a lot of money in people's pockets and how much they would spend uh, relative to the supply and the supply shortages that were out there. But what we're hearing now, Scott, is that the uh, new potential uh, taper timeline has the Fed, in fact, announcing that taper in September. And you'll remember uh, our, our CNBC surveys a month ago had that in November or December. So that's pulling that forward by a couple months, mm-hmm. October or November for the actual taper to begin. Um, and you remember that was December or January 2023. And the length of the table would be eight to 10 months, which would clear the way for possible rate hikes. And I think what the, the professor said is fascinating. Who's afraid of a 1% funds rate? If you think about what it would take for the Fed to get to a 1% funds rate, even if it began on day one of the 10th month of the taper ending or the eighth month, uh, you would not be at 1% until well into 2023. So if that's a glide path the professor requires for his investment, uh, it is well-oiled. You know, Steve, I, it feels like the Fed's going to be successful in avoiding a taper tantrum because of a great taper telegraph. I mean, it's been no accident that <laughs> more speakers over the last two weeks have been more hawkish. It's like a concerted effort to get the market conditioned, as you reported, I don't know, a month ago, six weeks ago at this point, that they were going to do so that when they ultimately do the taper, everybody's cool. You know, Scott, that's an excellent observation on on several fronts. The first is that very modest reaction to our reporting today. very modest reaction last week. I think we hit all-time new highs while we were talking about a very uh, a significant contingent of the Federal Reserve moving towards um, uh, uh, a September taper announcement. Uh, and, and so, yes, the, the Powell has been successful conditioning the market for that. But even more so, the more interesting thing is to look at the probabilities that have been out there and what's happened to the outlook for Fed rate hikes. Those have barely budged. And if Powell wanted to accomplish two things, he wanted to avoid a tantrum and he wanted to separate in the market's mind the criteria and the actions of tapering versus Mm. changing interest rates. Mm -hmm. And it appears as if the market is kind of able to, you know, pat its head and rub its stomach at the same time when it comes to the difference between tapering and raising rates. Tapering is not tightening. Right. And he was going to go to whatever lengths he, he had to go to to accomplish that goal or at least get the market to believe it. Steve, stay with me because I want to bring the professor back in. That's what that's why, professor, that we can talk about everything rallies in the same context of tapering and changing Fed policy, even albeit slightly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I mean, Steve laid it out and it's going to be eight to 10 months. And and the tradition is you wait until taper is over to raise rates, you know, theoretically, now, with the, uh, they could raise rates before ending the taper uh, because they set the short-term rates on Fed funds rate by setting the interest rates on reserves, which could be independent. But uh, the tradition is you finish one before the other. Now, if the inflation numbers come in a lot worse than expected, you will see pressure to maybe start raising the rates before the taper actually ends. Um, again, I'm not scared about that because, you know, the quarter point increases 
uh, given you know the the increase in profits and the increase in inflation, are still going to who's going to borrow and say, oh my God, I I'm not going to borrow against inventory costs that are rising at seven, eight, nine percent a year because suddenly you know the Fed has raised it to one or two percent. They say it's still free money for me. Yeah, yeah still free money for investors. Uh, so again, uh, you know the, the the glide path for the bull market. Uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't see anything stopping it. All right. So, 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 Bryn, if if we don't have to worry about the taper, and we don't have to worry about China, and we don't have to worry about Delta, what the heck do we have to worry about? Well, those are all good things to always worry about. But you know, I have a question for Professor Siegel. You know, you talk a lot about inflation. And when I look at whether it's CPI or PCE, which we know the Fed looks at, but if you look at core CPI, I think about 40% is housing. And as a, as a layperson, you would think housing, that must be what is your house worth? But it's actually what's called owner equivalent rents, where they go out and ask people, what do you think you can rent your house for? And that number has been benign. But if you look at where apartment rentals are year to date, I think we're over 9% of an nine percent up just this year when historically we have about two to three percent so my question to you are you looking at like the real inflation like i'm explaining like rentals and do you think that our policymakers are somewhat ignoring the real inflation versus something like an owner equivalent rent which just is not a real number that we yes. all live and breathe as as homeowners well, you, you are you just hit a bullseye. You're you're absolutely on target. I, I've been speaking about this. You take a look at housing and owners uh, equivalent rent and they're up like two, two and a half, three percent from a year ago. And you say, well, just a minute here. The average price of a home is up 20 to 25 percent. And as you mentioned, the data on rentals, uh, I mean, uh, are are soaring. Um, it's the way the Bureau of Labor Statistics compute that they are so lagged every six months they ask the question well you know on your lease are you up so the, all this inflation is going to just come in over the next 12 to 18 months um and it's 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 they're going to be 20 percent inflate you're right housing is 35 to 40 percent of the total actually 30 percent i think of the cpi and 40 percent of the core as you mentioned that's slowly going to go up to a 20% increase. Uh, and it's only at a 2.5% increase today. So you're absolutely right. Um, there's more and more reports coming out on that. I don't know why the staff and the, the meetings say, guys, I, I think we have a ticking time bomb here for the reports, but it's already happened. But you're not going to get good data for the next 6 to 12 months. Hey, hey Steve. <laughs> Steve Leisman, before I let you, you bounce, because I want to get back to the, the committee and, and some specific stock-related stuff, uh, the impact of China slowing, the Delta variant and the unknown, and the timing of September, is that problematic for what some in the Fed a week or two thought was going to be a, a worthy timeline? I think it could be. Let me quickly respond to what the professor was saying, which is that um, the Fed is recognizing some of this concern about inflation that it could linger beyond. Remember, this was going to be something that was going to be transitory through the fall, then transitory through the end of the year. And now I think there's a sense at the Fed that this inflation problem is indeed going to linger into next year. And that's a reason why there's a, a, a little bit more urgency about the taper at the Federal Reserve. All those things are, are wild cards, Scott, that you mentioned. Um, I think uh, uh, 
Fed Chair Powell doesn't think that the Delta variant is going to be a huge deal economically. Obviously, he's concerned about what's going on with people's lives. But economically, I think the issue is that uh, uh, he um, uh, doesn't see, he believes that we've learned to live with this um, uh, uh, disease and that ultimately demand will not suffer. Supply remains an issue, and that's really an inflation problem. He's sticking to transitory, whether it's the Delta variant or inflation. We'll see. Steve, thanks, as always. That's Steve Leisman. Professor, it's always good to hear from you. Uh, I'm sure Bryn appreciates the A-plus that you gave her for her question to <laughs> you as well. We'll talk to you again soon. That's, <laughs> that's Professor Jeremy Siegel at the Wharton School down in Pennsylvania for us. Up next, I mentioned the plethora of moves that our committee members are making today. You've got to hear about some of these. We're going to do that next. And as a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. The Pentagon says that flights in and out of Kabul airport have been halted out of an abundance of caution. This after American officials said that seven people were killed in attempts to escape the Taliban, some people clinging to a U.S. military plane while it took off. A Pentagon spokesman saying that he does not know when flights will resume, but that a thousand more American troops will head to Kabul. In New York, the head of the United Nations urging countries not to abandon Afghanistan. He told an emergency meeting of the U.N. Security Council that he is particularly concerned about reports of human rights violations against women and girls in Afghanistan. And on the news, we'll speak to a retired general who focused on Afghanistan under two presidents, how Afghanistan fell so quickly and what the U.S. will do next tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. And the southeast is getting ready for Tropical Storm Fred. It's expected to make landfall this evening near Panama City on the Florida Panhandle. About 10 million people are under flash flood watches in Florida, Georgia, and Alabama. Scott, you're now up to date. I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, appreciate it very much. Thank you. All right, let's talk about some of the moves that uh, our gang is making. Steve Weiss, I'm going to start with you. You have a lot to get through. So you sold uh, Vuzix and Jumia 
Tell our viewers why, because I, I know a lot of people followed you into both, and you talked about them on several occasions on this program. Why did you sell them both? Right. So, so I've been pretty clear over the last couple of months that these aren't stocks for this kind of market, uh, both because they're very highly, uh, valuation is very high in terms of multiple revenues. And so I've been cutting back on my position substantially, and it's left with a really small position. And even though both companies are doing well, Jumi in particular, Vuzix missed the last quarter, um, but I think they'll make it up going forward. There's small cap as well, and small cap has done nothing since January and is rolling over. If you take out financials and energy, I mean, it's, it's really been, been an underperformer. So that's why I did it. I still have gains even on these tag ends. You know, I was in a lot earlier, as I mentioned when I first got on air, 350 roughly musics, and in terms of Jumi, about 13. And look, like the companies, but you do two forms of analysis. You analyze companies and you analyze stocks. I like the companies. I don't like the stocks. I think I'll be able to buy them back cheaper. So that's why I did it. Both CEOs are doing a great job. Paul Travers of Musics is one of the top technology CEOs, true visionary, and they have killer technology, but just not appropriate for this market. So I'm concentrating my portfolio. You really want to be high quality, lower valuation stocks, and larger cap going forward. Let's try and, and get even a little more specific if, if we can, and, and you're able and comfortable in, in doing so, since... I know you, you just said that you would look to get back in at cheaper prices. Let's throw up Jumia again because the stock is, is selling off. It was already down, and now it looks like it's turning a little bit lower on, on our conversation. you have a number in mind that our viewers should have their I don't. It, eye it, on, too? It, it depends on the market. It depends on the market. So, you know, part of this is what's happening in the market. The market's just not rewarding these stocks. I mean, and what really triggered me to selling this is a buddy called me up and he told me about this great story. The fundamentals look phenomenal. He's saying, but the stock keeps going down. I said, you know what? I got two of those as well. Fundamentals are great, but they're going to keep going down. So it's not a trade. It's a reaction to the market. I can't tell you what price I'd get in, um, you know, as I said, the market would have to embrace small cap. I don't think that's going to be for a while. We're at the end of the ripping bull market. These are ripping bull market stocks. I'd put Snowflake. I'd put Crowdsource. I'd put Zoom. All those into it. So very well, I mean, highly you this one, price you call, to revenue stocks. You call this one the Amazon of Africa or something to that effect in the past. Right. Exactly, it is. They've got additional problems in Africa, which is Africa is very under-vaccinated. So and they haven't really hit the stay at, home, stay at home trade in terms of additional buying we saw with Amazon and developed countries. So they're doing a lot of good things. They just signed, you know, essentially a digital payment agreement, largest bank in Egypt where they compete very well against Soup, which is owned by Amazon. But again, look, the valuations just aren't there in this kind of market and the stories just aren't treated so, well in this kind of market. Right, you, so you also sold can't coin give me a price that I get back in. You sold Coinbase. Right. So Coinbase was down again. And, you know, I saw it got stopped out of half the position. Um, you know, I'm really just looking to concentrate my positions. And this trade didn't work out. I lost lost good money on a, what I think is a foolish trade. So I said, look, distraction at this point. Can't let ego get into it. That was going to be right. Let me get out of it. I'm not as optimistic on the market as everybody else appears to be on the show and as Tom Lee and others. You know, I'm not for major decline. I'm just looking, hey, I got to reallocate my capital within stocks I love. So 
I added to Volkswagen over a week ago. Moderna, I added to a little bit of it today, and I came in short, um, well, long puts in, in BioNTech, which were up 800%. I covered three quarters of them, just overnight up 800%. So fully hedged in that position. But down at this level, Moderna, with all the news that's coming out, including today, I just thought it was a good opportunity. Core position still there. I added a slight trading position. Could be right, could be wrong. Have tight stops on the trading position. All right, so Bryn, you, you own Coinbase, and I believe you still do. And you also bought more of the small cap value ETF, the SVAL, right? Yep, yep. So I think um, two points on Coinbase. You know, I'm a big fan of Coinbase. I like cryptocurrencies. It's a very competitive space. The way I'm playing it is I own the stock. And if you own at least 100 shares, you can sell calls. And in something like Coinbase, you're getting close to about a 10% premium if you go out to December or January. And so the stock has been very volatile. It's gone from 220 to 270, back down to I think it's about 250 today. So you can take that option premium that you're getting, get some really nice call premium while you're waiting. And so, but I'm definitely in the stock long term. I think Brian Armstrong is great. He's, he's a great founder, CEO. So I'm, I'm long the name for the long term, but using those, using those calls. On small cap, I think I probably more agree. I haven't talked to Steve about his views on small cap, but if I can just kind of guess, if you look at the Russell 2000, you know, there's a lot of really weak companies in there. And so what we did is I wanted to have exposure to the the economy, get as close to the economy as I can. And actually, small cap value is the way to do that. And so this factor-based strategy it's really smart. What they do is they take the Russell 2000 and then they eliminate the stocks with the lowest liquidity, like market trading liquidity and the highest leverage. So they're taking out a lot of the crappy companies that really have probably no business being public. Then they positive screen for companies that have the top net income, the top market, the top book value and the top cash flow per market cap. And then they equal weighted to buy around 200 companies. And what's interesting is, you know, Steve is spot on, you know, small cap did really well, like the Russell 2000 this year, but it's really been languishing. And year to date, you have, I think small cap, small cap Russell 2000 is up 13. Well, SVAL is up 25. And so I added that, that position last week. Mm-hmm. It has about 43% in regionals, um, about 20% in industrials, and the rest consumer discretionary. And I think as the economy recovers, those high-quality small-cap value names will do great. Okay. You uh, also bought more of a stock ahead of its earnings after the bell today. We'll get to that later, so don't do it now. Up next, the big ETFs to watch today, plus John's unusual activity. We'll do it next. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. Indexing is coming to dominate the investment world, and that means the people who control what goes into those indexes 
are increasingly influential. Our guest today, Dan Draper, chief executive officer at S&P Dow Jones Indices. They publish thousands of indexes, but most importantly, they decide what goes into the Dow Jones Industrial Average and the S&P 500. Dan, the Dow Jones Industrial Average turned 125 years old this year. Congratulations to you. There is a $13.5 trillion benchmark to the S&P 500 right now. Indexing and passive indexing is clearly winning over active investing. But we do have a new regulatory regime in Washington. I'm wondering if you've met with SEC Chair Gary Gensler or his staff and what, if any, concerns they might have about the explosive growth of indexing. They obviously are concerned about the explosive growth of, of day trading. Would Gensler be an ally of yours or not? Hi, Bob. Great to join you. And you're right. Uh, happy birthday, Dow Jones, 125 years. In terms of uh, you know, regulation, look, you know, we don't take any forward views. We actively engage as the world's biggest index provider. Uh, we want to be kind of constructive and helpful, I think, in that process. Um, but what we do want to do is continue to provide independent uh, indices, you know, which we've done for 125 years. Yeah, I think the important thing is a lot of people say you'll provide whatever they want to provide. If you want to provide an index that has certain things in it or not in it, China in it or not, you'll be perfectly happy to do that. I think a good example of the power of indexing is the growth of ESG. There's billions of dollars benchmarked to ESG indexes, including S&P. You've got indexes benchmarked here. But there's a lot of confusion about what ESG is. What role, if any, does S&P play in clarifying uh, that confusion? As you mentioned, Bob, I mean, ESG is growing all over the world, including increasingly now here in the U.S. And look, our job and our long history is to provide, uh, you know, information and benchmarks, barometers and new information uh, to the uh, to the our clients who are the fiduciaries, who are the investors who make these decisions. And in the long history we've had with sectors, style and now I think ESG, we're, we're in market with products. Uh, we want to once we feel comfortable with the underlying data, the methodologies, we want to get those in the hands of the marketplace. Yeah, a lot more coming up here. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about indexing with Dan on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Learn more about how indexing works, about ESG indexing, cryptocurrency indexing, trends in thematic tech indexing. It's all on ETF Edge. Also joining us, my old friend Tom Leiden from ETF Trends. That's ETFEdge.CNBC.com. Halftime. Back right after this. All right, here we go. Dr. J, unusual. What do you have for us? Well, let's start off with McDonald's, Scott. MCD, they bought both the 240-250 calls, and then they really jumped up and bought the 245 calls, both of which expire this week. So they've traded over 6,000 of those 245, Scott. I'm in the at-the-money 240s, but nonetheless, this kind of upside speculation with just a few days to play, that means that I'm going to be very quick to take profits or Cut losses if it doesn't work out. Stock's up a buck fifty so far. Second trade, former um, Michael Coors and uh, now they're Versace, Jimmy Choo. Uh, it's known as Capri Holdings. This one, they're buying the uh, August 58.50 calls, Scott, with the stock right around that level. I'll be in that one probably the same number of days. Just measuring it in either hours or days, Scott, because both options expire this week. Doc, thank you very much. We appreciate that coming up. We have a very big week ahead for retail earnings. We'll kick around some of the ones that our investment committee owns. Still got to give you that stock that Bryn bought more of ahead of earnings after the bell. You want to hear about that? We're back right after this.
All right. We do have a big week ahead for retail earnings. Several names, Target, Walmart, Home Depot, all set to report. Pharma Jim, Mr. All-In, Home Depot. Give us the lowdown. Home Home Depot is just a steady eddy. It should be in everybody's portfolio. What you do with this, it's a multi-year hold, but you can trade. You know, I got into this, I think it was January, after the fourth quarter earnings report, for whatever reason, sent the stock down. That became a great opportunity to buy it. If the stock goes above 355, heads towards 360, I think I might lighten up a little bit there. But housing, whether it's renovation or new home sales, is going to go on for some time. This is a multi-year hold. You can trim around the edges, but hold it for multi-year. Jerry, and he, I might as well call you Mr. Retail. I mean, you got stock in Lulu and Target. You got calls in Bed Bath & Beyond, Best mm-hmm. Buy, Capri Holdings, as you said, an unusual Gap, Home Depot, Macy's, Target, VF Corp, Walmart. It's a big week for you, my man. It, it, well, hopefully it will be, Scott. Um, yeah, I'm betting that the consumers out there spending some of those uh, hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars in savings And I think that it's going to be a good week for that, despite that Michigan sentiment survey, Scott. But time will tell. Weiss, quickly to you, you own Target. Uh, That stock's ripped. I'm assuming that the bar is going to be exceptionally high. They better deliver. Yeah, they better deliver. You know, if they don't, the stock goes down. I may put it on a trading position, touch the core. Cornell is just a stud, and he gets it done. Uh, It has sold off in quarters in the past, and guess what? It's always moved higher. So I think Dick is going to be the more interesting one. And, uh, you know, they're cheap, 10 times earnings, targets 22 times. So I think that's the one to watch. They'll they'll continue to hit it out of the park. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades on the other side. All right, let's do final trades. Bryn, you're up first. Tell us about this stock that I've been teasing throughout the program. Okay, well, drum roll, um, Roblox. Um, As I've talked about before, I own Roblox. I'm a big fan of the platform. It's a gaming platform. The company has been around for years. It is a new IPO in 2021 or 2020. And so I added to the position last week. Mm -hmm. Their earnings come out. So if you don't own it, you may want to wait till after earnings because the market doesn't always like companies after their earnings come out. I think what's incredible is if you look at the company in Q1 of 2019, they had about 15 million daily active users. As of last quarter, they had 42 million daily active users with over 9.6 billion hours played just Mm. last quarter. So this is a juggernaut of a company. So like the stock and we'll continue to buy it on weakness. All right. Good stuff. Thank you for that. Uh, Dr. J. Um, D.R. Horton, Scott, D.H.I. Why? Well, because uh, on the last earnings report, they pretty much blew it out and offered positive guidance. I think it attacks those May highs, Scott, which are around 106. Mm -hmm. They were buying calls all the way up to the 104 strike here today. Um, They have pre-tax margin of 40 percent or more. Um, That's all bullish, Scott. Um, I like this one a lot. Yeah, you bought uh, the uh, August 104 calls. Okay, uh, Steve Weiss. Mm -hmm. Yep, been pressing my China short, so I'm short Baba, short Pinduoduo, and short Billy. Look, if if people that own these stocks do any work, a mm-hmm. modicum of work, they realize that they own okay. nothing. These are going lower. Momentum uh, and downside right. is increasing. Uh, Farmer Jim, I need a name. CVS. All right, good stuff. Thanks, everybody. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Sometimes it takes a different approach 
to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.